Joseph blessing the entire nation. We are in Genesis 47. We're actually probably going to start in Genesis 46 um, and then hit some of 47 as well. We are coming to the end of the story of Joseph, and we have been exploring the story of Joseph from this viewpoint that he foreshadows Jesus. And thus, the whole time we've been talking about how he represents a savior, and we're actually in the story, the brothers. Uh, No offense, not trying to Uh, get anybody upset here, but we're the ones who need saving and receive salvation, and that's good news. So we spent the last several weeks talking about Joseph, saving his brothers, forgiving his brothers, accepting his brothers, even though they had greatly sinned against him when they sold him into slavery about 20 years before. So we've talked a lot about salvation. That's a great way to spend time, by the way. And now we're kind of talking about the aftermath of salvation, What is the aftermath of your salvation? What do we do after we've been saved and we're walking with Jesus? Of course, we never give up the gospel. We need the gospel even after we're saved. But like, what do we do? Like, what activity, what action do we do now that we're walking with Jesus? You see, Christianity is very, very interesting. Because there is no, like, specific work we have to do to maintain our salvation. Now, obviously, we're not saying that salvation is a license to sin. Romans says, God forbid that we should live any longer in sin. We not only have the death of Jesus and our sin is dead, but we have the resurrection of Jesus and we've been given a brand new life to live in a new way. So we're not saying that there's not works we're supposed to do or called to do or should do, but there's no work we have to do to maintain salvation. In other words, we should take the Lord's Supper. It's a commandment. Right? We should take communion. But like, if you miss the next communion service and then you die, right? you get hit by one of these crazy Greenville drivers that don't know what a yellow light is, you don't, I mean, your salvation is still intact, right? Your eternal life is still intact. There's no work we must do to keep ourselves saved, and we can't get more saved by like taking more communion, right? If we could, we'd just be eating bread and juice for the rest of our days. Justification, this is such good news. I I don't want to roll over sentences like this, but justification is a work of God, not man. That's great news because we don't work very well. So then what do we do? We don't have to do anything to maintain salvation. So what do we do? What do we do with the blessing of salvation? We bless Others, we have been blessed by the creator of the world to be a blessing to the world. For God so loves the world. He so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And then do you remember what Jesus said? Jesus said that he sends us out to the world to bless them just like he did. He said, even greater works than these will you do. Here's the big idea. We are blessed to be a blessing. In fact, that's the whole reason Genesis is ending with stories like these. This story of Joseph saving people from the famine of the land. 
That's the, there's a reason this is at the very end of the book. It is to highlight that the story of this book, the book of beginnings, the book of Genesis is one of blessing. I mean, I'd say it this way. One way you could summarize Genesis is that the enemy brings a curse, but God brings us blessing. God blesses us. He blesses his people to be a blessing to the world around them. That's one of the stories that's themes, the mega themes even, of the book of Genesis. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, right? They're God's people. He, God blesses them. And to some degree, it's not perfect. It's not all the time. It's not entire. They bless those around them, like Lot, like Laban, among others. It shows us how God is blessing his people to be a blessing in the midst of the curse until the ultimate blessing comes in the new heaven and the new earth through the serpent-crushing sun, Jesus Christ. So the enemy brings a curse. God brings blessing. He blesses his people to bless the world around them. And Joseph is the ultimate case, the ultimate picture of this in the book of Genesis. This is why one-fourth of the book of Genesis is actually dedicated to the story of Joseph. And it carries this theme so clearly and beautifully. Joseph has borne a curse. His brothers sold him into slavery at 17. He's working for Potiphar. He's falsely accused and thrown into prison. Then he is forgotten in prison. But God... God the Father flips the tables on this curse and he blesses his people, his covenant son, Joseph. As Joseph stands before Pharaoh, he interprets Pharaoh's dream and he is blessed immensely by God himself. Now, real quick, let's work on some definitions. What does it mean to be blessed? Well, if you Google it, you'll find what I'd say is actually a pretty biblical definition. Good work, Google, right? Endowed with divine favor. Joseph, the covenant son, is endowed with divine favor. Pharaoh places him as number two in the land. And though in one sense he is a servant of Pharaoh, in another sense he's incredibly blessed and favored. He's given a lot of blessings. He's given wealth and power and freedom. He's given good things from God on high. And what does Joseph turn around and do with those blessings? Well, we see today he blesses everyone else. Now, again, another definition, right? Because we want to get all this strained out. What's it mean to bless everyone else? What's it mean to be a blessing? Another quick Google search, right? Two for two here is pretty accurate. It's bringing some sort of relief. You know, you need relief. The world needs relief. We are in a sea of people, and every single person has something in common. They need to be relieved of some burden, internal, external, or both, and blessing them is to bring some sort of relief or restoration to them. And we'll see today, Joseph uses his blessings as number two in command to bring relief to those around him. In fact, the entire nation, as Josh just read in this way, Joseph is much like Jesus and he is an example that we should follow. So let's check some of this out. Joseph's blessed to be a blessing. First, we'll see this. <clears throat> Joseph is a spiritual blessing. He blesses others spiritually. Look at verse 31 of uh, chapter 46. Genesis 46, 31. 
Then Joseph said to his brothers, to his father's household, I'm going to go up, speak to Pharaoh, and I will say to him, my brothers and my father's household living in the land of Canaan have come to me. Okay, I'm going to put in a good word for you with the boss. Look at verse 33, right? Don't mess this up, he says. When Pharaoh calls you in, don't embarrass me, right? When he asks, what is your occupation? You should answer. Your servants have tended livestock from our boyhood on, just as our fathers did. Then you will be allowed to settle in the region of Goshen, for all shepherds are detestable to the Egyptians. Um, I don't know why, that's just kind of funny, right? Like, what's the worst thing in the world? A shepherd, right? We hate the shepherds. So I actually really like getting into passages like these because at first they seem so overly detailed. It's like minutia. It's like, what are we doing? What can we even do with this? Why is this in the scriptures 4,000 plus years later for us in 2022? But actually they make one big obvious point if you just dig a little bit. Have you heard the one... um, about two ladies talking and one lady says to the other lady where's your husband and she says he's in the backyard she says really I didn't see him back there and then she says well you have to dig right as a pastor we're allowed one terrible joke per sermon and so there's mine actually I'm going to use a few but the idea is yeah I didn't see anything in there well you got to dig a little bit and when you do when you dig a little bit you see there's a reason all this detail is given so let's review. Here's what Joseph's doing. He said, I'm going to get you an audience with Pharaoh. He's the only guy hiring me. This is going to seal the deal for you to live in Goshen. And when he asks you what you do, you got to say this. We're shepherds. In other words, you may know carpentry. Don't mention that. You may know farming. Don't mention that. You may think you're a great singer and headed for American Idol. Don't mention that. You may think, hey, my pottery is the best pottery. Don't tell them about your pottery. Okay. Tell them about your skills as a shepherd. Why? Because they detest shepherds. Similar to the way a Hebrew would probably think of someone who raised hogs, if that helps you understand. So it's like, what? Why tell Pharaoh we're shepherds if the Egyptians detest and are disgusted by shepherds? Because since they don't want to be shepherds, but they need shepherds in this day and age in this culture... That gives Pharaoh an excellent excuse to let you foreigners move into the greenest pastures during a famine. Additionally, underneath even this, there is some serious spiritual wisdom in this that leads to spiritual blessing. If you dig, you will find this, that Jacob's family, when they move to Goshen, they are moving to the suburbs I think, I think how we would actually say it is they're moving to the countryside. They're moving to the country is one way to say it. It's not part of the big city of Egypt. It's further out. And thus, it is far from the paganism of the Egyptians. It would be nearly impossible for these brothers of Joseph, this family of Jacob, to be influenced by the polytheism, the dark arts, the black magic that was popular at the time in Egypt. Very interesting. If you read through the Old Testament, 
every time, almost every single time, the Israelites interact with another nation, they get tangled up in the false gods of that nation. And it's a big downfall for them. This happens all throughout the Old Testament. Except for where? Exodus. Exodus is the story after Joseph. And in Exodus, we see all these Israelites in Egypt. And it's not recorded that any of them fell under the false religion, false gods of Egypt. It's, very, it's a very fascinating thing. We don't see any sign of them falling away from the monotheism, the one true God that they know. So why? Why is Exodus a different story than, say, Hosea or uh, Jeremiah, Isaiah? Those guys talking about how they are Israel is always intermingling with the false gods. Here's why. Joseph blessed his family with a great spiritual blessing, with a great land, a great distance away from great sin. One way you can bless others spiritually, particularly your family, is helping them keep away from sin. See, I thought we were supposed to move into the city and, 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 and find those who need redemption, even if they worship false gods. We are. We totally are. But these types of things progress as we mature in Christ. Do Joseph's brothers seem spiritually mature enough to go into pagan Egypt and try to redeem others? They're not there yet. Some of you, you just met Christ. Some of you just rededicated your life to Christ. You may not be ready to go into the lives of certain sinners because you're not ready to face that temptation again. The Bible actually, as much as it tells us to go into the lives of sinners like us, because we're sinners too, it also warns us just the same. Galatians 6.1 is one example. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in a trespass, you who are spiritual or mature, restore him. But even for the mature, he says, do it in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. So some of you, the blessing for Jesus for you in this season is going into the lives of the broken and helping them be whole in Christ. For some of you, the blessing of Jesus in this season is that he is separating you from the crowd, the crew, the posse, the entourage you used to run with to make you whole in Christ. And some scholars think that's exactly what Joseph is doing for his brothers here. And it's going to last generations all the way into the Exodus. Which, by the way, when you turn the page from Genesis 50 to Exodus 1, 400 years passes. I mean, we're talking generation after generation. The family of Jacob goes from 70 to 2 million plus people. They're in Egypt, but they don't Worship the gods of Egypt. Now, I want us to think about this. This is amazing. It's amazing. The sin you separate yourself from now could have a positive effect generations into the future of your family. American culture doesn't allow us to think like this very often, but biblical narrative constantly prompts us to think this way. We don't often think of ourselves, you and me, Westerners, we don't think of ourselves generationally. We think of ourselves individually, currently. I'm sure there's something good about that, but here's something bad about it, is that we miss out on a lot of Bible. 
We miss out on a lot of Bible. The Bible talks quite a bit about two things, generational curses and generational blessings. Blessings that last for years and years and years. In fact, speaking of Exodus, in Exodus 20, verse 3, when Moses is giving the Ten Commandments, you've probably heard this one. It's the first one. He says in verse 3, Exodus 23, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. This is what Joseph is helping his brothers obey. Verse 5, he says, Don't bow down thyself to them or serve them, for I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. Can I explain that? Not exactly, but I can give you some big takeaways. Here's the idea. We pass down more than just our hair color and our health issues. Okay? We pass down our temptations and our triumphs, spiritually speaking. Now, this isn't only true and always true. Okay? The Bible also talks elsewhere about how every generation has their own choice to make. But it's generally true. There are some people who battle sin solely because their parents, grandparents, great-grandparents battled those sins, right? So if your parents were angry people, it would not shock me that you're an angry person. So how dare you call me angry? I'm leaving this church a one-star review, and I'm sending you a strongly worded email which I will forward to Josh, and you will have the nicest reply and probably a free cup of coffee by the end of the week. <laughs> right? You'll probably get saved, baptized, joined by the time you meet with Josh. You're like, I'm sending you an email. This is, how dare you call me angry? Here's what I would say. Is that you talking or your old man? Is that really how you would respond? Or have you learned this response from your old man. You see, some of your sins come down from your mama in them. Bless your heart. It's true. You have learned so much in the early ages and stages of your life that now are just normal to you, but they're not really you. It's a generational curse. But here's what we want to talk about this morning. And the good news is that this is the same for blessings. This is the good news that your blessings can go down to generation after generation after generation, generational blessings spiritually. I mean, this is true in my family. Sarge was the first one to get saved. What's up, Sarge? That's my grandpa. He got saved as an older man. Not an old man. He's still not an old man, but older. My dad got saved when he was a young guy. After his dad, Sarge, got saved, I got to grow up in a Christian home, and now my little son, Alden, is growing up in a Christian home. It's a blessing, generation to generation to generation. So this is a very big Bible idea, Genesis idea. There is such a thing as spiritual blessings, generational blessings. So get this, get this, get this. This is something, if we dig, we're learning from Joseph, his brothers, and Goshen. If you, if you will distance yourself right now from your idolatry. It could be that 400 years from now, someone with your last name will be worshiping the one true God. 
We have to learn to think like this if, as Christians, our goal is truly to be part of the redemption of the world. Who's going to be the world in the next generation? Whoever we leave here. This is a huge part of the text, if you dig. So let me say this again. If you will distance yourself from your idolatry right now, it could be 400 years from now, someone with your last name will be worshiping the one true God as a result. They won't know your name, but they'll know Jesus' name. Generational blessing. This is the type of blessing Jesus can bring and many times does bring to a family. You say, will Jesus do this for my kids? Will Jesus do this for my family? Well, some of that's in Jesus' hands. Additionally, just to repeat, every generation does have their choice to make. But here's what you can do. Here's what you can know. Here's what you're responsible for. You're responsible to be a spiritual blessing to those around you, and that includes the family. Jesus has given you great spiritual blessings. Jesus has died in your place for your sins. He rose again so that your grave would have no power. He fills you with the Holy Spirit with power, love, and of a sound mind. You can use all this to go out, teach others the gospel, hold your friends accountable, pray for friends and family, encourage them, disciple them, be a spiritual blessing. This is what we do in the aftermath of our salvation. Joseph's blessed, and now he's a blessing spiritually. He's also going to be a blessing physically. This is the entirety of chapter 47. So we're going to start and reading this, but before we get to really the big point of being a physical blessing, I'm just going to tell you up front, we're going to have to take a rabbit trail. I know, it's not the best public speaking method to take a rabbit trail, but here's what I'll tell you. Most preachers are taking rabbit trails, and they're not even telling you. So I'm taking a rabbit trail, and at least I'm telling you. You get what you pay for, this sermon's free. Genesis 47, verse 1. Joseph went and told Pharaoh, my father and brothers were with their flocks and heard everything they owned that came down from the land of Canaan. And are now in Goshen. So he chose five of, this is kind of interesting, he chose five of his brothers and presented them before Pharaoh. I guess bringing in 11 would be a bit much. Like, whoa, Joseph, you're looking like a missionary prayer card with all these kids. Verse 3, Pharaoh asked the brothers, what's your occupation? Your servants are shepherds. Okay, so they did not mess this one up. Good work. They replied to Pharaoh, just as our fathers were. They also said to him, we have come to live here for a while because the famine is severe in Canaan and your servants' flocks have no pasture. So now please let us settle, let your servants settle in Goshen. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best part of the land. Let them live in Goshen. And if you know any among them with special ability, put them in charge of my own Livestock. So you talk about bringing relief. Relief, man. The famine is severe. Joseph brings his family before Pharaoh and into the greenest pastures. Some of them are going to get this really lucrative job of shepherding the flocks of Pharaoh's estate. They're going to go from being broke to bankrolled. Joseph is using his physical blessings to be a 
physical blessing. But first, a rabbit trail that's just too good to pass up. One thing about blessings that doesn't fit into my outline, but that I need you to know, is that blessings often bring about blessings. Just like sin can lead to more sin, you've probably noticed this. That's why our lives are often a wreck. The opposite can be true as well. Blessings can actually lead to more blessings. It rolls on like a snowball. It just goes on and on. I mean, here's what I mean. All right, let's read the next couple of verses. Let me break this down. Let's read the next few verses, 7 through 10. Joseph brought in his father Jacob, presented him before Pharaoh. And after Jacob blessed Pharaoh, interesting, Pharaoh asked him, how old are you? Rude, Pharaoh, but okay. Verse 9, Jacob said, Pharaoh, the years of my pilgrimage are 130. My years have been few and difficult. They don't equal the years of the pilgrimage of my fathers. I'm not as old as my old man. Verse 10, then Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from his presence. Twice there. Isn't that it? Blessed, Jacob blesses Pharaoh. Blessing brings about blessing. In other words, giving someone a blessing like Pharaoh is doing for Jacob often is a blessing for the one receiving it and the one giving it out. You see this in the text. He agrees. Pharaoh says, you can take your 70, go live in the best of the best lands, get the best jobs in the best country during this worst famine. Pharaoh blesses Jacob and his clan. And what does Jacob do for the non-God-fearing king of Egypt? Jacob blesses him. And he is blessed for the rest of the book. It's just like God said to Abraham back, I think, in Genesis 12, when he first made that mention of the covenant for this family, I will bless those who bless you. So Pharaoh is giving something away, blessing Jacob, but oddly, it is the best thing he can do for himself. Because Jacob, who's connected to the real God, is blessing him. Do you see this in the text? Here's the idea. Oftentimes, blessing brings about blessing. This is why when the youth group takes that mission trip down to you know, Nicaragua or whatever, and they come back and they give the testimony service, what do the youth say? They say, I want to be a blessing to them but really they blessed me every time. You say, why does this cliche exist? Because this truth exists. Blessings bring about blessings. It was not Saint Nick, it was Jesus who said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. In an incredible irony, one of the best things you can do for yourself is bless others. <laughs> It's just a, just a trip, just interesting. It's a phenomenon. It's the exact opposite of your nature. One of the best things you can do for your anxiety, your depression, your anger, your apathy, your boredom, is to bless others. In the aftermath of salvation, we can forget just how good we have it in Christ. We can get stagnant and lukewarm. What do we do? What are we doing here? What do we need to do? Well, what's the answer? Live as a blessing. Blessing will bring about blessing. So we're not just living as a blessing. We're white knuckling it through because I got to be a blessing. This is the worst. I got to bless everybody. This is my horrible life now, right? That's not, don't, it's actually, this is great. This is fantastic. This is the best existence we could hope for. 
and our vapor on this earth. To be a blessing, it brings about blessing. Okay, rabbit trail is over. Thank you for sticking with me. Back to the big idea. Joseph was a physical blessing to those around him. Okay, so Pharaoh blesses Jacob. Jacob blesses Pharaoh. Kind of cool. Now back to kind of the main thrust. We're looking at verse 13, getting to the bulk of the chapter. Joseph physically blessing everybody. Not just his family, but the whole world. Look at verse 13. There was no food, however, in the whole region because the famine was severe. Both Egypt and Canaan wasted away because of the famine. Joseph collected all the money that was to be found in Egypt and Canaan in payment for the grain they were buying. He brought it to Pharaoh's palace. When the money of the people of Egypt and Canaan was all gone, all Egypt came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? We can't pay for it, though, because all our money is gone. So just in case you missed it, it's a famine. That means they cannot grow their own food. They have to buy it from whoever has it. And who's been storing it up for seven years? The government, Joseph, Pharaoh. Okay, so for two years now, they have bought it, like at a grocery store, a government-run grocery store. They've paid for grain, but now, because they don't have anything to grow, they're not making any money, they've run out of savings to give in exchange for food. So they're coming in desperation. Here's Joseph's solution. He's going to bless them physically. Verse 16, he says, then bring your livestock. Instead of money, bring livestock, said Joseph. I'll sell you food in exchange for your livestock, since your money is gone. Okay, so we don't know this in 2022 because we often don't deal in livestock. Uh, but this is an incredible deal because the livestock were worthless. Why? Because there's nothing to feed them either, right? But you talk about seven years of sick-looking cows. I mean, that's what he's buying, right? This is not, this, this livestock would have been worthless. But he says, okay, you have to give me something because that's my job right, is to give to Pharaoh. That's what I do. That's what I have to do. But he's not charging the Egyptians very much, and it works for a while. Look at verse 17. This livestock trading exchange, it works. Verse 17, so they brought their livestock to Joseph, and he gave them food in exchange for their horses, the sheep, the goats, the cattle, the donkeys, and he brought them through that year with food in exchange for their livestock, right? So a couple of sick cows, hey, you get an extra year of life. It's a pretty sweet deal. It works, and it only works, though, for a year. So now we're into year three of the famine. But the famine is so severe, they run out of livestock to exchange. Right? The year is up, they got nothing left. So here's what the people proposed to Joseph. Verse 18, when that year was over, they came to him the following year and said, we cannot hide from our Lord the fact that since our money is gone and our livestock belongs to you, there's nothing left for our Lord except our bodies and our land, our effort, our work, and the land we could work with. Verse 19, why should we perish before your eyes? We and the land as well. Buy us, buy our land in exchange for food, and we, with our land, will be in bondage to Pharaoh. Give us the seed so that we may live and not die, and that the land may not become desolate. So the people of Egypt are so hungry, they are so in need, they offer up this deal. I'll give you my land and my work. You, Pharaoh can have everything he wants, the whole kingdom of Egypt, if you guys will give us the food you've stored up. 
in their minds, they're saying it's better to serve Pharaoh than to starve to death. So what's Joseph going to do? He's going to give them exactly what they just asked for. Look at verse 20. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh. The Egyptians, one and all, sold their fields because the famine was too severe for them. The land became Pharaoh's, and Joseph reduced the people to servitude from one end of Egypt to another. Go down to verse 23. Joseph said to the people, Now that I have bought you your land today, Pharaoh here, uh, for Pharaoh, here is seed for you so that you can plant in the ground. But when the crop comes in, give a fifth to Pharaoh. The other four fifths you may keep as seed for the fields and food for yourselves and your households and your children. Verse 25, you have saved our lives, they said. May we find favor in the eyes of our Lord. We will be in bondage to Pharaoh. All right. So as we read this, there's some question marks, aren't there? Like, is this, is this okay? Like, is this right? There's no Congress. There's no capitalism. There's no free market. Is this, is this right, Joseph? Many have asked this question. Commentators seem to be pretty split on the answer to that, in a sense. Okay, many have asked this question. Many have some answers. I found three main answers. One group says Joseph here is taking advantage of people. In a desperate situation, they argue that he's doing the wrong thing. Another group is too excited about what Joseph's doing, and they use this as like a biblical uh, narrative to promote like socialism or something like that, which is not really what's going on in this text at all. Third, third group, this is the majority, say Joseph is simply doing his best with where he's at, the position that he's in. He's doing his best with what he's got. He has to please Pharaoh, and he wants to feed the people. That's the third view. Which view is correct? Well, here's one thing I want to say real quick. We do not automatically have to assume that Joseph did all this perfectly. Okay, so the Bible doesn't want us to think of the stories, the, the, the leaders in its stories as heroes or as superhuman. The Bible's talking about normal, everyday people like you and me who God is using for his glory. There's only one perfect guy in the Bible, in history for that matter. His name's Jesus. Joseph represents Jesus and foreshadows Jesus, but he's not Jesus. So let's just say that Joseph here wasn't perfect or did take advantage of someone when he shouldn't have. That would not do any damage to our faith. So we're not afraid. But I would say, after studying it, thinking about it, I agree with view number three. I think it's, I think it's the clear choice. Okay? This is not a sin. I'm not saying he did it perfectly, but this is not a sin. And it's not prescriptive on how countries should run the government. That's a different conversation for a different day. What's going on here, I think, is that Joseph is simply doing the best with what he's got. A monarch and hungry people. And he's in the middle. A couple things I will tell you to back this up. Though it's not the point, I just want you to know the Bible. And so I'll tell you a couple ideas here. One, Joseph is second in command, but he is beholden to Pharaoh, who is already a great king. Like, this is a monarchy. He already kind of does have 100% rule and control. If you remember, that's how Joseph got his position as assistant regional manager, assistant to the regional manager, right? Uh, he, he's like, hey, you interpret my dream, you're number two. 
you're, you're, come on up, right? No votes, no Congress, no Senate. The, the king can do whatever he wants, right? So two is we already have a kingdom and a monarchy. Two, you may be thinking, why not just give them the food? But it's not like this King Pharaoh is always the most super reasonable guy to deal with. You may remember the baker. Dun, dun, dun. You guys remember the baker? Joseph interpreted his dream. Three days later, he's out of jail. It's Pharaoh's birthday. At Pharaoh's birthday party, he executes his baker at his birthday. So we're not talking about like, you know, a guy who's leading the men's prayer breakfast. Right? This could be a little bit trickier to deal with Pharaoh than you might expect. Right? So Joseph could be thinking, well, if I just give them food, I'm signing their death warrant. Three... These people may, this is my weakest point, but they may not have a leg to stand on. Like they were warned for seven years, famine's coming. And they had seven years of insane plenty, and they did not save up enough to even get through year three. So it may be that this is kind of on them. But four, it seems Joseph doesn't really change their day-to-day operations, their day-to-day lives except for for the better. The only thing that he says is that you got to give one-fifth to Pharaoh. It's this 20% flat tax that he, he puts on everything they can grow with the seed he gives them. So Pharaoh, he owns everything now, but he isn't going to change their day-to-day lives, except for now they get to eat, which I would say is a positive, right? It's, it, it, their lives go back to normal, except for one thing, they have to give one-fifth to Pharaoh. And in case you didn't know, not to depress you, it is tax season, you are likely given more than 20% to your government, right? You were taxed on everything that got you to this moment. You got taxed on your breakfast, the clothes you're wearing, the car you drove here, the gas in the car you drove here, the phone you're using for a Bible, that's all been taxed. And it's like, what, 1145, okay? So for some of you, this 20% flat tax, that would be relief. So here's the idea, okay? Last but not least, they say, however this goes down, they say this, verse 25, you have saved our lives. Here's, Here's really what I think is we're narrowing down to. Joseph is a physical blessing to these people. Joseph is a physical blessing. So what does this mean for us? We bless people spiritually and physically. This is like two pedals on the bike. You need both to get anywhere with people. You do one but not the other, you risk doing nothing. Different groups of Christians tend to err on one side or the other. right? So you got people who all they do is bless physically. They feed the, the stomach but forego feeding the soul. I was on a mission trip once where we were feeding the poor up north. I was at a church up north, and the pastor specifically told us not to witness because he didn't want anybody to feel awkward. Now, just kind of a life tip here. If you're in a church and the pastor tells you not to witness, you may want to get a new pastor. Because, no, I don't want the, the poor guy to feel awkward either, but I also don't want him to feel the wrath of God. Romans 10 says, how will they call on whom they have not believed? How will they believe on whom they have not heard? How will they hear without a preacher? So some, they're really into the physical side, don't do the spiritual side. For us, we're more conservative theologically. We err the other way. We want to bless everybody spiritually with a word or with a prayer. 
or with some sort of explanation of one of the doctrines or the secondary issues, but then we tend to withhold physically. I have seen this with conservative theologians who have literally paid money to go get like a PhD in Bible and have never stepped foot inside a soup kitchen. They have never rebuilt part of a home for someone who can't afford it. They've never given a kid a Christmas present who gets none. It's the weirdest thing. They got a PhD in Jesus, and they don't do any of the things Jesus did. They could tell you everything about, I don't know, any of it, Calvinism and Arminianism, but they haven't actually elected to go see a poor person and help them out. And, and here's all I'll tell you. As far as I read the scriptures, they're not laying up enough treasures in heaven to pay off the student loans they took out for learning the Bible. You do nothing. James said this. When all we do is bless spiritually, he says, what good does it do? He says this, if a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, I'm praying for you, brother, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? It's a great question, James. We got two pedals on this bike. We bless others spiritually, to be sure, and physically. If we miss one, we're missing a pedal on the bike, and we're going nowhere fast. Jesus blessed others physically and spiritually. He sat on the mountain. He preached the Sermon on the Mount. It is the spiritual food for billions of people to this day. At the same time, before he trekked off on that trip, he took with him Peter, James, and John. The night before they left, they went to Peter's house. His mother-in-law was laying there with a fever. It was one of those fevers that were scary. It was one of those fevers that was got so high it hurt. They were nervous, they were scared, and he lifted her up out of the bed, and in a moment, the fever broke. He blessed her physically, and what does the Bible say she did? She got up and she served them. She was blessed physically, and then she's blessing others physically, cooking dinner for Jesus, Peter, James, and John. This is deep within us as Christians. This is everything to us as Christians. We bless in both ways, physically, spiritually. This is an incredibly Christian balance. This is a very uniquely Christian uh, operation. This is what we do. The other, others can bless physically, not spiritually. Other people trying to bless spiritually, not physically, whatever. Here's what we do, both. I want you to know this is deep within our DNA as a church at Griggs Church. At Griggs Church, we are 100% bought in to not only being a spiritual blessing, but a physical blessing to this neighborhood. We're involved in Mana Ministry Tuesday mornings over at Calvary First, bringing groceries for those who need groceries, handing those out. We are involved in the Way Outreach Center right across the street, a homeless daytime care facility for people who need just a place to get a snack and take a nap. I was over there on Friday playing chess with a homeless guy who beat me twice, so I cannot go back for a while, but you all should go. <laughs> Tuesday nights at 6, we're involved with Ministry Park. Tuesday nights at 6 at Ministry Park, right in the middle of the neighborhood. There's a meal for anyone who needs it. Saturdays at 4, another meal for anyone who needs it, right in Ministry Park. We, I'm on the board of that, whatever that means. I try to help. 
right? We are, we are in on this. Uh, Rebuild Upstate. Last year, we were part of rebuilding five homes in Poe Mill that needed repairs desperately, but the people that had the house couldn't afford it. Poe Mill Achievement Center, across the neighborhood, Buncombe Road. They are an after-school summer daycare situation for the kids of Poe Mill. And this Easter, we are taking up an offering to them because they meet physical needs in the neighborhood, and we're all about blessing people physically. We do this as a church, and I want you to do this individually, blessing others physically, because it's one of the pedals on the bike. Or let me say it this way, and I'll finish with this thought. These two blessings, spiritual, physical, go hand in hand. It's right here in the passage. Oftentimes, spiritual blessing leads to people doing better physically, okay? There was a kid who came with his mom. This is a few years ago now. He was having seizures all the time. I, my heart went out to him. Um, I just prayed for him with all my heart. Right here, it was right up here uh, after the service. I just begged God to heal this kid of seizures. I, I, I just did that. I'm not saying what happened theologically or anything. I just said, Lord, please heal this child. A couple, like a year and a half later, they actually came back to one of our events, a block party, like the one we're about to have here for Easter. And I ran into him. I'm like, hey, man, how you feeling? How's your seizures? And the mom said, he hasn't had a seizure since you prayed for him. I was like, wow. <laughs> like, I believed, but I don't know if I believed, believed. <laughs> but I guess I did believe, believe, right? Now I'm trying to bless him spiritually and comfort him. I'm not a doctor. God is. And so he blessed him physically. And the reverse is true. A lot of times we bless others physically. It helps them spiritually. It's in the text. It goes hand in hand. Let's look at how the text ends. Very interesting end to this chapter, verse 27. 27. Oh, man, I'm over. Okay. So Israel dwelt in the land of Egypt in the country of Goshen. They had possessions, grew, multiplied exceedingly. Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the length of Jacob's life, 147 years, physical blessings. Verse 29 through 31, got to go quick, forgive me. But when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called on Joseph and said to him, now if I found favor in your sight, please put your hand under my thigh, deal kindly and truly with me. Please don't bury me in Egypt. Let me lie with my fathers. You shall carry me out of Egypt to their burial place. Joseph said he would. And in verse 31, at the end, it says, so Israel bowed himself on the head of his bed. Okay, I want to make a comment about verse 31. It says he bowed himself. In the Hebrew, it means he worshiped at the head of his bed. In the book of Hebrews, it sheds more light. And the idea is that he was holding on to the bed and leaning over his staff with another. Uh, that's how it kind of plays out. The idea is he can't get on the ground and bow down physically to worship. He may never get up. He's 147. He needs a lot of support, but he still stands up out of the bed to worship. And this is amazing that the chapter ends with Jacob worshiping. Why? Because Jacob has had such a rough life, particularly the last 20 years. You remember what he said to Pharaoh earlier in the chapter. Look back up at verse 9. What does he say to Pharaoh? Genesis 47, 9, Jacob said to Pharaoh, the years of my pilgrimage are 130. My years have been few and difficult. How's that for an Instagram bio? Right? 
My life has been crazy. Some of it my fault. Some of it not my fault. He spent the last 20 years thinking his beloved son Joseph was dead. Spent the last six months worrying that Benjamin was going to die on this whole debacle of going down to Pharaoh and the cup and the sack and all of that. If you look at the last couple of chapters, every time he speaks or is mentioned, he's discouraged. He has hardly any faith left to speak of. But now, physical blessings have come into his life. Joseph is back. Benjamin is safe. His family is fed and living in a good land. He's been blessed physically. And by the end of the chapter, it actually helps restore his faith in the living God. So much so that he asked Joseph to bury him in Canaan. And what's significant about that? It's the promised land, the land God promised to his descendants. In other words, he knows that he's never going to see Canaan. It's likely his kids, his grandkids that are alive now won't see Canaan. But he's saying, one day my descendants will come back to Canaan, and I want them to see me buried there. He is showing, by the end of this chapter, extraordinary faith in the promises of God that he knows he'll never get to see. He ends this chapter so strong spiritually. Spiritually. And what helped him get there is that someone, his son, his Pharaoh, blessed him Physically, here's the truth. Blessings go hand in hand. If you'll bless someone spiritually when you can, you'll bless them physically when you can't, you'll just be a blessing in general. You will bring a whole and complete restoration to someone. You will bring a whole and complete relief to someone. And that is the point of your life now that you have been saved. This is following Jesus. He was cursed. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Yet he is blessed forever because God raised him from the dead. And now Jesus as king brings great relief to the world day in and day out until he returns. And we are about the same business. Joseph was blessed and now he blesses others physically and spiritually. You've been blessed. How have you been blessed? Think. Count your blessings. Physical blessings, spiritual blessings. Who can you share those with? Because this is the aftermath of salvation. This is what we do now. This is just like what we do. We find that guy and we bless him. We find that lit, we bless her. Who can you bless? Maybe you need to pray. God, bring someone in my life to bless. I doubt he's going to say no. We're blessed. Amen. To be a blessing. Hallelujah. Now, I know it's not a blessing that I went about an hour, but we are still going to bless God's name and sing to him. Andrew, come on up. Let's pray. Let's count our blessings. Let's leave. Being a blessing. This is our life. Jesus, thank you for our blessings, every single one.